Hi, this is Zach Hapenstall, CEO and co-founder of Rise48 Equity. At Rise48, we partner with investors like you to purchase large apartment buildings that we renovate to increase the value and create a profit margin for our investors through monthly passive cash flow distributions and profits on sale. We're a vertically integrated company specializing in the Phoenix, Arizona and Dallas, Texas markets with over 200 plus full-time W-2 employees who are focused on making sure your investment is taken care of. To learn more about Rise48 Equity's multifamily investments, schedule a call with me at rise48equity.com backslash invest. My accountant, I went to him and I said, I want to do deals with no debt. And he said, well, that's ridiculous. Nobody does that. You won't be able to get any investors. I said, well, then I won't. But that's how I'm going to do it. Hello, left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. Hi, this is Peter Lenneman, and you're listening to Passive Investing from Left Field. I'm really excited to have Joel Friedland with us. He is an industrial real estate syndicator with over 40 years experience and nearly 100 acquisitions in the Chicagoland area, totaling about 3 million square feet. He has over 200 investors and has a very unique philosophy when it comes to debt ratios and preservation of capital. And we are going to dig into all of that. Joel, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Hey, Jim. It is great to see you. Well, thanks for being on. And the first question I always ask is if you could just kind of give your your backstory. How did you get into real estate? Why did you decide to get into industrial and and why Chicago? So if you can kind of tell us how you got here and uh, we'd love to hear it. Sure. When I was 22 years old and I had graduated from the University of Michigan, uh, which, by the way, just won a big game uh, two nights ago. Very exciting. Um, My... uh, my path that I was pursuing was to get into real estate, but I didn't know what industrial was. And I was introduced to a family that owned 6 million square feet of industrial properties in the Chicago area. And they hired me literally on August 22nd, 1981. It was the first day I was looking for a job. I met them, I interviewed, and I started. And that was 1981. Now, I was 22 years old. Interest rates were 17%, and uh, the recession was terrible. Companies weren't moving. And my boss, Steve Podolsky, had 84 buildings, and 10 of them were vacant. And my job was to go fill up the vacancies by cold calling in industrial parks and finding tenants. Wow. (laughs) Sounds like fun. Actually, I found out that I could do it. I didn't know if I could do it or not, but Mr. Podowski said, I want you to get in your car and drive to our vacant buildings. I'll give you the addresses and just stop in and talk to all the neighbors and see if you can get them to move into one of our buildings. And that's what I did. It was really fun. I, I could, it was fun. (laughs) You probably haven't heard anybody say cold calling's fun, but when you do it in person and you're in an industrial park, Every company's different. Each company manufactures or distributes a different kind of product. And I'd walk in and I'd get invited into the owner's or the president's office almost every time because who does that? And I'd sit and listen to their story about their family business and how grandpa started the company manufacturing some kind of parts to that went into cars and how they went into aerospace and how now there's all these family members. And it, each each meeting was cool. Wow. And then, so where did you go from there? So you, you, I assume you filled those 10 buildings and, and your boss was pleased. And then did you decide to become an investor or were you just kind of an employee and and eventually became an investor? Well, I was an employee because they had a brokerage company. And so not only did they own properties, but they had their own leasing side. So I was working with about nine or 10 people who were on the leasing side for them. And I became an industrial real estate broker. And for 10 years, I worked for the Podolsky family in the Chicago area, where, by the way, we have 16,000 industrial buildings, which is a lot. 
there's three top markets in the country. Chicago is one of the top three. It's debatable whether it's the number one best. But uh, the reason Chicago is so great is because it's a huge population center and because it's the, the place where rail and where all the highways converge in the middle of the country. And because of the fact that there's uh, natural fresh water, which is really important, especially for food manufacturers. That doesn't happen everywhere in the country. We've got Lake Michigan and the water just comes from these giant pipes to all the buildings. So Chicago is really a fantastic hub for industrial. And so I brokered, I, I made no joke, 2000 industrial real estate deals over the past 40 years. I still do brokerage. Uh, for clients that have been with me for a long time, and I'm 64. So for 42 years, I have two clients that have been with me the entire time. One's called Eli's Cheesecake, and the other one's called the Bradford Exchange. And if you can imagine having a client for 42 years and doing all of their leasing and all of their construction um, management, overseeing additions to their buildings and renewals of their leases, uh, and in between, I've done deals with all kinds of manufacturers and distributors and service companies. It's been really fun. And and so where where is that now? So you you transitioned away from just become being a broker to owning a business, being a, an operator where you're buying properties for your own your own account, and then I, I assume you're renting these or renting these properties to the manufacturers or whoever. Can you kind of explain? where you are now and, and what the business is like? Yeah. First of all, the answer is it was extremely hard to make the transition because when you're a broker, you're not uh, putting money into anything. You're putting your time in. And after 10 years working for Steve Podolsky, who I love and I see still a close friend of mine, um, I, I realized that he and his family were wealthy, not because they were brokers, but because they had acquired and syndicated millions and millions of dollars of real estate. And so they they weren't inviting me to be a syndicator as part of their family. They were saying, you go lease our buildings and bring us commissions by doing third-party brokerage where you can represent tenants as a tenant rep and landlords as a landlord rep. So the reason I did all those deals is because I built up a huge group of relationships in brokerage. But when I wanted to do my first uh, acquisition or syndication, I didn't even know where to start. I was completely stymied. And I, I was just like pulling my hair out and I was trying to figure out how do I get started buying? There's such a, a barrier to entry when what all I know how to do is introduce party A to party B and make a commission. So I had to start somewhere. So I went to the Podolskis and I said, will you help me learn how to be a syndicator? And they said, you go find a building and we'll put up one third of the money and we'll introduce you to our investors, but you need to bring them into your deal. We're not going to sell your deal for you. And then you need to bring in at least a third of the, of the money from your own people and yourself. So I found an opportunity and we did a $560,000 deal in 1989. And we raise money at $20,000 per clip. So you can imagine that's a lot of people for 560,000. You know, we, we were, we had to raise money from 20 something people and the Podolskis were true to their word. They put up a third of the money and we leased the building. We, we bought a vacant building. We leased it. And then within six months I decided, Hey, this works. I can do this. And with their help, again, I went and did the second one, and that was a $2.7 million deal, which is much harder, <laughs> <laughs> really hard. You know, I was 30 years old, and I was raising all this money, and I had never done it, and I had to find this other deal. So the, the next one uh, was in Aurora, Illinois. We, we had two buildings there next to each other. We leased one to Maytag. Uh, and at the time, they were famous for having the repairman that had nothing to do. He, <laughs> right. I don't know if you remember those hands. Sure. And we leased another one to an office furniture company. And it was really um, a difficult time. 
because when I started was when the Gulf War occurred in, in the early 1990s. That's when I had done my second deal. And every time there's something that happens terrible in the economy, real estate gets very tough, like right now. Right. When, when something happens, whether interest rates are high or whether there's a war or whether there's a recession. And I learned that it's very difficult uh, to raise money and to do deals when bad things are happening. It, I kept doing it and it became easier and easier as the economy got better and as I had a track record. And ultimately, uh, I left the Podolsky's organization to start my own company with three other uh, people who were doing industrial. And the Podolsky's continued to be my friend and continued to invest with me. Uh, I left on really good terms. But since then, I've, I've done another 90 acquisitions, Florida, Ohio, New York, and Chicago. Okay. Yeah. So, but your, your focus is still Chicago for all the reasons that, that you've given, or, or is, it, is it kind of branching out now, or did you branch out and then realize Chicago is the best place to be and you came back? Yeah, I branched out, and then I realized I don't need to get on an airplane and go to somebody else's market when I know the market here as well as anybody in town. You know, I've got this laser focus on the industrial market here. As I said, there's 16,000 buildings. There's 1.5 billion square feet, which is huge. There's enough to do here. Every day, the market changes just enough that I don't know everything every day. The next day, it's different than it was the day before. And so my group and I are immersed in the Chicago market. We need to track everything that happens so that we are the market experts because we don't want to be fooled and do something stupid and buy the wrong building in the wrong market for the wrong reasons. So I don't want to go to some other market and figure out their market where someone's the Joel of, let's say Nashville or the Joel of Dallas. I'm going to go there and there's going to be someone who has 40 years of experience and I'm going to try to learn the market and figure it out and make something work. So I've learned that um, <laughs> there's a, I've got the parking lot theory. You know, you can, if there's a parking lot and all the spaces are full, you can drive around and around and around, or you can just park in one aisle and wait for someone to pull out in that aisle and you're the guy that gets the space. So I'm the parking lot theory guy. And so I'm just watching this market like I'd be watching an aisle in a parking lot and I know everything that's happening in that aisle. So we're right down that alley of Chicago industrial and it gets so specific, Jim. Only infill, which means either in the city or near O'Hare Airport, nothing way out in the, the far out suburbs for a variety of reasons. It's really important. And we also only do small deals that, let's say, are under 100,000 square feet, which is small in our world, because I don't want to compete with pension funds that have unlimited money and they just will, will build these giant buildings that... When things go bad, they sit vacant for a long time, and my investors and I cannot take uh, that kind of a loss. And talk about, like, you know, investors typically, like, I, I, I like to diversify by operator, asset class, market. You know, how is it that you are so hyper focused, not only on a niche asset class and in industrial, but also a market that isn't? really common for syndications in, in Chicago, you know, mostly it's in the growth states. Um, and then you're also concentrated on just very specific areas within Chicago. So can you just talk about that concentration of risk and, and how you, you deal with that as, as a company? Yeah, sure. Um, there are three or four syndicators in Chicago who do industrial. So I'm not the only one. It's such a big market. It's so vast that there are others who do it. And of the four of us that do it, we're the smallest. And we have this niche and our niche is buildings of between, let's say 10,000 square feet up to as big as maybe 45, 50,000 square feet. And the reason that we like those buildings and that that's our niche is because that there's a, plethora of tenants for that size. And there's a, even more interested buyers for that size. So 
what we do is we generally, this is our model, we buy these buildings that are generally leased by companies that manufacture products. I'll give you some examples of this. And we buy them from families. So the, the industrial world uh, is full of companies that were started by grandpa like 50 or 80 years ago, and in some cases, great grandpa. And the family members join the company as they get older. They, they graduate from college and they don't know what to do and they go into the family business. And then two brothers are in and the two brothers have kids. And now all the grandchildren have to figure out if they want to be in the business. So the model is this. We find buildings that were previously occupied by the company that was the family-owned business. The, the way that this works, the process works, is the family ends up fighting with each other or not wanting to be partners with each other in the building anymore. They sold the business to a private equity group. And then the private equity group stayed in the building and leased it back from the family. So nine out of the 10 deals that we do is we buy buildings from these very, very wealthy families that just want to get rid of them, where the tenant in the building is the company that they used to own that's now owned by somebody bigger. And we lease the buildings to those companies and they stay and stay and stay. We call them sticky tenants because they have so much equipment and they have employees who are used to being there because that's where they've always come to work and the companies can't afford to move. So many of our buildings, we have tenants that have been there for 18 years, 25 years, 30 years, and they keep renewing the lease every time the lease comes up every five or seven years. And that's what our portfolio looks like. And are these uh, triple net leases or can you can you talk about what what you're responsible for and what the uh, tenant is responsible for? Sure. Let me give you our pro forma. We want an 8% return starting day one. So we buy all cash, no mortgages. And if we buy a building for a million dollars, we have to be getting 80000 a year in rent because our our investors like to get 2% a quarter. We distribute quarterly. Really important that we we have that the pro forma of the 8%. And one of the biggest um, things that that I find in terms of our syndications is that we we have all these people like you know who, who like to put in a small amount because they like to diversify. So we have $50,000 investors, we've got $100,000 investors, but believe it or not, we start with 25,000 and we're very happy to get investors with 25,000 to learn about us and for us to learn about them. And we as I said, we don't do any any debt on most of our deals because we are so risk averse because here's the problem with industrial. If a tenant moves out of a 20,000 foot building, it's either fully leased or it's fully vacant. And when they leave, it's fully vacant. And we don't want to have to pay a mortgage and have a, a lender breathing down our neck. So th that's sort of how we put our deals together. Now, is that, is that common uh, with your competitors say that the, the no debt, because you know, it it certainly is risk averse, especially if someone moves out. But on the on the other side, you know, when interest rates were super low, you know, you're you're missing out on that leverage, so you're not able to, you know, get those bigger returns. Is that is that been was that a problem or an issue for you when the interest rates were so were so low that everybody was levering up? No, no, we we are in a special, very special niche. We're, I think we're the only group in the country that does all cash deals like this. I don't know anybody else who does it. And the reason we do it is because of my emotional well-being personally. I've been through four cycles and cycles happen. And even though things have been great for 15 years, there's going to be another downturn. And from an emotional standpoint, I went into some really uh, dark places each time we had properties and we had debt and the banks were chasing us to pay them because we, you know, when, when you have a mortgage and you, you have to pay on time, it's the first thing you got to pay. The bank has no sense of humor whatsoever. 
So I learned that I just couldn't take the emotional downs of losing money. And I explained this to my accountant and I said, I've done a bunch of deals with debt. By the way, our average remaining debt on our 19 buildings right now is 17% loan to value. So we do have some remaining properties with loans, but every, two out of every three that we do right now, we do all, all, all cash, no mortgage. So my accountant, I went to him and I said, I want to do deals with no debt. And he said, well, that's ridiculous. Nobody does that. You won't be able to get any investors. I said, well, then I won't, but that's how I'm going to do it. And I called up a number of our longtime investors who've been with us for, in some cases, 30 years, 25 years. And I explained what I was doing. And it seemed really interesting to me that many of them said, you know what? I like that. I like the idea of not losing my money because there's no bank. Especially today, you look at all the newspapers, Wall Street Journal, local business journals. A lot of people are giving buildings back that are these class A office buildings and hotels. And I don't want to be in that position. And so, yes, it, it does hurt us in terms of the magnification that you get from leverage that we don't have. But there is a group of investors that doesn't care about that. They just want to make their 8% knowing that it's going to be consistent. And if there's an interruption, it's temporary and they're not going to lose their money. And I've got 64 of those investors right now who love all cash, no debt. Yeah, well, especially in this market, when other people are doing capital calls and, and things like that, there's uh, there's no reason for you to do that because the debt uh, didn't didn't get out of control for you. Russell Capital is an elite Ohio-based private equity firm with a specialization in long-term, high-cash flow multifamily investments. If you're looking for long-term recurring income, you should check out Rustbelt Capital. From their approach to managing risk, to the locations they invest, the product quality they provide, this firm is serious about what they do, which is why the owners of Rustbelt Capital invest their money in every deal they take on. Review their case studies by visiting rustbeltcapital.com. That's rustbeltcapital.com. Once again, rustbeltcapital.com or email investor at rustbeltcapital.com. Self-storage has been one of the fastest growing real estate sectors for four decades straight. With inflation on the rise, it may be the hedge you're looking for. Spartan Investment Group identifies low-risk, value-add investment opportunities in commercial real estate. Their private debt and equity opportunities offer stable monthly payments and predictable returns. And since they put every investment through a 700-plus point due diligence checklist, you can invest with confidence. To learn more, visit spartan-investors.com. I'd like to talk about the, the, the importance of tenant selection when investing in this industrial real estate asset class because you've mentioned you know, if someone moves out, it's it's a lot harder to replace a tenant in, in an industrial place than it is, you know, multifamily. So oh, yeah. can you talk about tenant selection and and how you kind of vet the tenant, and make sure that you're getting the right tenant? And then also, could you talk about is there a tenant in place when you buy these properties typically? Yes. Uh, about 90 percent of the time, nine out of 10 deals, there is a tenant. And so. When we vet the tenants, when we buy leased buildings, we like to get their financial statements and we like to interview their executive personnel to make sure we know who they are. One of the most important things is to know how much debt they have themselves, because like us, if there's too much debt, that's what crushes them. And it's also important to know, this one's not obvious, how large their largest customer is relative to their sales. because. We had a printer at one time where their biggest customer was a, an office supply company. And the office supply company, because of the internet, got hurt badly. And they lost the printing job because they weren't printing catalogs anymore. Everything went online. And the tenant, the printer, called me and said, I just lost my biggest customer. And he was somewhere in the neighborhood of 50, 60% of my business. I don't think I'm going to survive this. And he went out of business. He closed it down. We were incredibly lucky. We owned the building next door, which was owned by an awning company, commercial awnings for, for banks and restaurants. And 
that guy, we were in touch with him as our tenant regularly. And I called him and I said, Jim, Jim, Jim Patton. I said, Jim, um, the building next door is coming on the market. He said, holy crap, I need it. He leased it. And he put, he put together, because he made these canvas uh, awnings, he put together a frame between the building that he was in and the building that we had coming up with two drive-in doors on either side of this framed thing. With It was, it was a hallway over the parking lot with a cover on it and walls and openings on each side so that they could walk back and forth between the buildings and drive back and forth with forklift trucks. Now, Jim was the opposite. He had hundreds of customers. There was no customer that was more than about 5% of his business, maybe Chase Bank, because they would lease a building and you've seen their blue awnings, right? With, with their logo on it. That That's what he makes. So I knew that Jim was safe because he had so many customers. Also, we buy buildings with national tenants. We have the U.S. Postal Service, which I can tell you is the most disorganized tenant we've ever had. They pay their rent late and they pay their taxes late. And they owe us $130,000 right now. And that's the, the rent and taxes all together are only 500000 So they're like a, a third of a year late. I've got a brother in my business and he complains to me that his job is chasing the U.S. Postal Service to get rent. They have a package delivery facility that we own. <laughs> it's you, you wouldn't believe. Why would they be one of the worst tenants, right? Right. That's crazy. Well, you hope they're good for it at least, right? They are. They are. Yeah. <laughs> so talk about the, the – so for investors, what are the biggest risks that investors should should think about when they're investing in industrial real estate, especially now because – you know, industrial has, has been the hottest asset class over the last several years. So is that, does that mean now it's time for, for a dip? So what are the risks and what is, what is the outlook? So what you see on the side of the highway in every town, you're in Ohio, right? Yes. Okay. When, when you drive around Columbus, there are so many gigantic warehouses. And what's happened is pension funds have figured out that industrial is really great. Why? Tenants stay and stay. The returns are, are, are usually better than they are for various other kinds of asset classes in real estate. Uh, the rent escalates every year. It's a very easy asset to manage. You collect the rent. That's about it. Uh, if the roof leaks, the landlord's responsible for that. They have to make sure the building's insured and all that kind of thing. But these big pension funds have unlimited money and developers have a deal with the pension funds. You take our money, you go develop a building on a speculative basis, which means vacant and try to attract a tenant. And for a long time, Amazon was occupying every building that everybody built. And that stopped by the way. But as the internet continues to expand and as there's what's called reshoring, which is companies coming back to the States from China to make products here because of supply chain problems that they learned about. They want to make stuff here. These buildings have just filled up. Like you build it and they will come. You build it and they will come. But it's gotten to a point where I believe that too many buildings are still being built and there won't be enough tenants to fill them all. And they're very large. And it takes a special tenant to occupy 500,000 square feet. So, I see that there's going to be a problem with these big buildings potentially at some point. It hasn't happened yet, but at some point. So if people invest in industrial, you've got to remember industrial actually is made up of about seven or eight different types of buildings. And the big, gigantic, high ceiling warehouses, that's just one. So if someone says, I'm investing in industrial, it's that, but it's also flex buildings, which have lower ceilings, but a lot of office for companies that do technical things. It's also our kind of buildings, which are the smaller, older Class B and Class C that were built in the 1970s and 80s. And then you've got older, you've got other older buildings, which are Class B and C, larger buildings. So there's so many different kinds of industrial. And 
yes, I think they're all at risk of seeing the end of the heyday. But if, if we, by knowing our niche really well, can pick the right buildings, the specifications really matter. If I had to design a building that was the perfect industrial building that would have the best opportunity to be leased or sold quickly at the highest price, it would be 20,000 square feet. It would be a box that would be almost like a square in terms of its geometry. It wouldn't have to have, because it's 20,000 feet, I want one dock for every 10,000 square feet. It would have to have two docks, a drive-in door so you can drive a van inside. It would have an, a minimum of an 18-foot clear ceiling. These brand new buildings go up to 36 feet. We don't need that for the smaller buildings. But here's the really big one. The number one rule in my industrial deals, the number one priority is parking. Because the older industrial buildings, a lot of them only had one car per thousand square feet of building. And as companies grew and they added more employees, they needed more parking. And if you only have one car per thousand and you grow your office, so your office staff used to have seven people and now, now it's got 14. And your warehouse used to have five people and now it's got 12. The problem is you're short. You're short seven, 10 spaces. And you can't operate your business if your people can't drive and park in their parking lot. So the geometry is really important and the parking's critical. So we, we look for buildings. And by the way, the parking also has to be in front or on the side, not in the back. Because in Chicago, it gets cold here in, in the winter. So people who, who have 14 employees in the office, they don't want their people parking in the back. Because then they have to walk all around the building to get to the front, which is a, a one-minute walk. And when you're freezing, you don't want to walk for a minute. So they have to then go through the back door through the manufacturing facility where they may have forklift trucks running around and machines doing things, and it's dangerous. So they don't want their people walking in the back door. So if someone submits to me a perfect building to buy, but it's got parking only in the back, the answer is forget it. Wow, that's interesting. I, ne I never would have thought parking was that big a deal on a uh, industrial building. That that that's great stuff. Let me ask you this: so for for LPs, right? That that's who's mostly listening to the, to this podcast. And one of the biggest things that we try to figure out at Left Field Investors is how do we evaluate an operator? How do we vet an operator to make sure that they're the quality type operator we want to in invest in? And so. How do we do that with an uh, someone like you, where it's an asset that you're in one asset class, and it's it's a less common asset class. You're in one market, specific market. So how does a an LP when they're first meeting you? How do they vet you and and make sure that that you're the company they want to invest in? I mean, you've given us all kinds of great reasons why the asset class is it makes sense. So talk a little bit about how to how to vet the operator. Sure. the The best way to vet an operator to me is to, first of all, get their PPM and look at it. And, and I can size up a, a private placement memorandum because I've done dozens and dozens of them and I've read hundreds of them. I would size it up like you do. I know you do that too, in, in about a half an hour. And I would come up with a list of really hard questions. And then I would talk to the operator and I'd want to make sure that I was talking to the decision maker at the operator, not some investment um employee, someone who was hired to talk to people and and sort of babysit them and and give pat answers that somebody taught them how to answer. I want I want to make sure that the syndicator can answer the toughest questions. And I mean tough. So what I do is I recommend to people that they get on the on the phone with me personally or my son who's in the business or my partner Eric. The three of us, we all know the deals. And I say to them, what do you think is the most important thing in terms of picking an operator? And they all guess different things. And the real answer is succession planning. If you are an operator and there's one person who knows everything and everybody else just takes orders from them, if something happens to that person, you're screwed. 
So you're, when you pick an operator, it's like, well, what happens if something bad happens to the operator? So that's the number one question. The number two question is, how do you make decisions? And I'm, I, I like your system in, in your tribe vest of having a bunch of people looking at the deal and throwing hard questions. We have an eight-person advisory board made up of our smartest, toughest investors. And I have asked them over the years to be on the committee. And we don't make any decisions to buy anything or lease anything or do anything major without having a Zoom call or individual conference calls with the eight advisors. And Steve Podowski, who was my original boss 42 years ago, is on that board of advisors. And there's the, the grandfather of a family that has been with us for decades, and he's on the, on the board. And I've got a fellow in Canada that knows syndications backwards and forwards, and he's on it. And I've got industrial real estate brokers who invest with us in Chicago, and they're on it. And so the decision-making vetting process is really important. And that, is, that assures that our due diligence is outstanding, that we've checked out the tenants and we understand the financials of the tenants, that we ask all the questions about real estate taxes and the condition of the building and making sure that inspections have been done and the environmental, all those things. When someone gets finished talking to me, if they don't think that I know more than anyone they've ever talked to in real estate, in, at least in industrial real estate, then I've made a mistake. I haven't done it right. And it's just experience. You know, I've been doing it for so long. That, but when someone's been in the business for a shorter period of time, asking the tough questions and seeing what they do and how they react to those questions is it. Because you really can't tell from, from the PPM. It's more of a sales piece and a, just a, a, a risk piece to talk about all the things that you can't sue them over if things go bad. It's really what do they know and how do they make decisions? That's great. That, that is that is awesome stuff there. So now that we've kind of vetted the operator and we're looking at the deal, and you've talked about some of this, how, how you look at deals, but it's different when you're an LP, right? You're not going to dig in and look, you know, we're not going to go as in-depth as you do, obviously. So what are a couple of metrics that LP investors could focus on when they're evaluating an industrial deal, specifically one of your deals? Yeah. So, um, because I have that group of advisors, I get a lot of really good questions from people who do know how to vet the deal. And what we do is we share the Q&A with the investors. And the Q&A has a lot of really tough questions that most syndicators would want to avoid because they don't want to <laughs> talk about what's really possibly going to go wrong. And right. every one of our questions, they're not softballs, they're hardballs. Like what happens if, and what do you know about the credit of the tenant? And what do you know about the, the real estate taxes in this area? And what do you know about the neighbors? I mean, who the neighbors are happens to be a very major issue. Because if you've got a bunch of guys that fix cars, you don't want to be in that deal because that's an area that's going to go bad. The, the, these areas where they, they fix cars, I don't want car guys. They're bad tenants. They're tough guys. I've had nothing but trouble with, you know, if you fix cars, you're dealing with people who don't want to pay you and don't agree with you and right. don't trust you. So I want to know who the neighbors are. I want to make sure the neighbors are longtime manufacturers with great employees. That's <laughs> like things you wouldn't even think of. Right. Yeah. No, that's great. So I, uh... What's what's the exit on these? You know, is it is it? I assume it's more of a long term hold. You said you've had some tenants for fifteen twenty years. Do you buy these and just hold them, or do you do you also have a, an exit plan to to sell after a certain period of time? Our average hold period is seven years, but if it's a great building, here here's a theory that I have. Most syndicators are looking to make money, and the way they make money is they make money on the promote when they sell the carried interest uh, and fees and fees when they buy and they sell things. So churning is very good for a syndicator. Holding long-term is not good for a syndicator because the longer you hold it, the chances of, of getting a big IRR go down because the big IRRs come because you bought it 
and you got lucky. Maybe cap rates went down or maybe something else happened that was lucky and you got out in three years. And syndicators can get rich by being turnover people. Holding is a different thing. It's more of a philosophy or, or a, um, a way of doing business that's completely different. It's almost like you're a family, a wealthy family. And wealthy families don't buy buildings to get in and get out, get in and get out. You know, they buy them to hold them and make the cash flow. Like, you know, you know how important that is. And you want the cash flow to go up every year. So, yeah, we're long-term holders. And I'm not ashamed to say that I've had one building at 5555 Exchange Court in Aurora since 1990. The long-term hold. But our average hold is seven years because if a tenant leaves, we then very likely will sell the building to a user rather than an investor because a user sale gets us a 30 to 40% premium over selling it as a leased building for a cap rate because manufacturers will pay more for a building in the neighborhood when they need to move because it's more of a tool for their business. So our exit strategy is usually to sell to a user for a premium and not to sell to some other investor. Because once you find a great deal, think about, I told you about the geometry of a perfect building. How many are there? Like when you sell that, how do you find another perfect building? So we hang on to them because it's impossible to replace a great piece of real estate. You know, you've heard of these wealthy families that have owned properties for 50 years in the family or 60 years or whatever. That's the way wealthy people operate. And so that's those are the people who, who invest with us or people who are not looking for the quick out. And if someone says, Joel, I only want to tie my money up for three years, the answer is, well, we're not the right guys for you because we want to own this great piece of real estate. We just bought three properties on the Chicago River. We have 1,200 feet of river frontage, which one day is going to be a condo redevelopment. But for the moment, we have a company called Tampico Beverages that occupies the buildings and they make fruit juice concentrate, and we have a seven-year lease. And the rent starts out at $7.80 a foot, and it goes up every year. And the question is, how do you replace three buildings on this beautiful parcel in this great neighborhood in Chicago with a tenant that's owned by, by, by a $4 billion parent company that can never move because the equipment, the, the, the tanks, and tubes and everything in the building would cost $20 million to move and their rent's only a million dollars a year. It would take 20 years for them to, to make up the, the move. So they're not leaving. So, you know, we want, we want buildings like that that we can keep long-term. And the one thing that I can say is if, a, if an investor wants to get out, if they need the money, I have enough of investors in each deal that all I have to do is send out an email, hey, Jim wants to get out of this deal. Who wants his piece? And we do something called a rule 144. The SEC has a rule 144, which is one investor can sell to another investor, and it's not the same as selling securities. And the only requirement is that they hold it for a year before they sell. And I've matched up party A with party B dozens of times over the years, and it's fantastic. And there's a one-page assignment agreement that the buyer and the seller sign with each other. We don't take a fee, we just arrange it. So we have a little bit of a trading floor to give liquidity because in a, in a 20 year hold, if someone wants to get out after five years, you gotta have a way for them to get out. They can't be trapped. Yeah, interesting. So just a quick question on that and then we gotta, we gotta go to our final question. But um, does the person buying it, do they set the price? How do they set the price? Is it just... You get whatever the capital you input, or or is it? Do you reevaluate the price of the building? How do, how do they how do they come to agreement on the price for their their swap? Well, well, that's a great question. You asked what kinds of things would you do to vet a syndicator? One of them is ask them for their reports. You want to see their prior reports they send to the investors. We send an annual report where we do a high low valuation of the property in writing, and we actually say this property. Uh, the high is 15 million and the low is 14 million. And 
that gets published and sent to every investor. So the investor who's selling knows that I think that the value of the building is 16 million on a good day and that it's worth 14 million on a bad day. And the buyer knows. So the buyer says, I'll pay you the four, at, at the rate of the 14 million. And the seller says, I want the 16 million. And I say, hey, guys, how about 15 million? <laughs> <laughs> Easy, right? Easy. And, and so if someone owns 1%, the one guy gives a check to the other guy for 150000 for his share of the $15 million, And that's the end of it. And, and the assignment agreement, we call it acceptance of assignment. It's I'm not kidding. It's, it's a half a page. And each one signs it. And I have to approve it as the, as the manager or GP. And the money changes hands. And we just we have to do something called the 754 election, which is a tax thing, so that the yeah. new buyer doesn't get stuck with the old owner's tax liability. It, it steps it up, like like when somebody dies or right. a step up in value. We have to do that. It's a little complicated, but we've done it so many times that our accountants are experts at it. That's, re that's really, really interesting. So the last, last question I always ask is, what's a great podcast that you like to listen to? Thoughtful Money, it's called. It's uh, Adam Taggart. He's uh, always interviewing economists about everything in the economy. There's not a lot of talk about real estate. It's mostly about the stock market and the Federal Reserve and central banks around the world. And it's fascinating. He's got he's on about three times a week. He used to have something called Wealthy on, and he left Wealthy on about a month ago and did this new one, this new thing. And I think 70, 80,000 people watch it. It's fascinating if you like to watch the economy and learn about it. No, that's great. I've heard of Adam Taggart. I used to follow him a few years back, so I'll definitely check that out. Um, so if listeners want to get in touch with you, learn more about your business, what, what's the best way they can do that? Uh, our website is Brit Properties, B-R-I-T with one T, properties.com. And uh, it's our, our Website is full of all kinds of information about what we do with the low debt or no debt. And um, <laughs> I've got an article that's called Why You Should Not Invest With Us. <laughs> <laughs> that's perfect. I, I, I like an operator who, who gives you all the reasons not to, um, as opposed to just trying to sell you on something. So that, that's fantastic. Yeah. We will um, we'll put all that in the show notes. And thank you for being on the podcast. This was fascinating. And it's about time. I've had you on, as I said, I've had you on the radar for a while. Really glad we could connect on this. So thank you very much. Thank you, Jim. Hey, left fielders. You know our partner, TribeVest, the platform that makes it super easy, safe, and transparent to form a business and invest with partners. I'm in 12 tribes myself. Now, TribeVest is integrated with LFI even more. Every deal webinar has the option to join an open tribe. This means left fielders can invest at lower minimums compared to going directly with the sponsor. It's a great way to diversify and spread your risk. TribeVest handles all of the heavy lifting. All you have to do is join the open tribe. Subscribe to LFI emails and sign up for Clubhouse Access to take advantage of deal webinars and open tribes. Hello, left fielders. At LFI, you know our focus is on networking and education. Mark your calendars because we're going to have a full day of it dedicated to you, our limited partners, at the best ever conference on April 9th in Salt Lake City. LFI is opening the BEC with Passive Investing with Left Field Investors, an event focused on passive investors. This will be where insightful content meets passionate limited partners. If you enjoyed BEC last year and the meetup in Left Field this year, then imagine them both back to back. The best ever conference isn't just any event. It's the premier conference for commercial real estate investors and operators. Your ticket to passive investing with left field investors includes admission to the entire best ever conference from April 9th through the 12th. Join us April 9th where we will have a packed agenda with sessions focused on how to be a successful limited partner led by experienced LPs, top operators, and partners. Then, immerse yourself in the full Best Ever Conference where you will be surrounded by like-minded investors, operators, and industry experts for unparalleled opportunities for learning and networking. The best part, and there are so many, but the best part, you won't find a bigger discount on the regular ticket price than the one you get for being an infielder. That's more content for an exclusive lower price. Register for the event today at leftfieldinvestors.com slash BEC 
and we will see you at Passive Investing with Left Field Investors at the BEC. That was a really interesting conversation with Joel. He has such a wealth of experience and just just listening to him, you can't help but learn a bunch. And, you know, he was a salesperson um, working commissions, selling and buying and selling properties for, for other people. And he realized his boss was wealthy because he owned the real estate. And so that's what got Joel into thinking, okay, instead of just selling for commissions, I'm going to buy and own because that that's where the money's made, which, which makes sense. And I like his parking lot theory, rather than driving around, you just go to an aisle and wait for someone to leave. And his analogy there was that's, that's what Chicago is to him. He knows that market. So he's just kind of sitting in that market and, and knows it better than anyone else and is watching for, for things that are available there rather than going to a market where he doesn't have uh, expertise. And then industrial, one of the things he said about industrial, which I really like is it's you have sticky tenants, right? Because the equipment is so expensive and it costs so much to move to a different location that you can get these tenants that stay five, 10, 20, 30 years and more as the one he said, you know, their equipment costs $20 million and rent is a million. So leaving is not really an option. And then the no debt, that's a, that's a difficult one, right? Because in, in past years, when interest rates were so low, your returns aren't amplified. But man, right now, could you use some properties that don't have any debt on them? You'd probably be pretty happy with that. So perhaps this is another way to diversify. You know, we talk about diversifying by asset class, operator, market, and debt. Right. So here you could this could be a play where you have a few investments that have no debt. They're not going to have the huge upside, but man, they'll have reliable cash flow and you won't have to worry about, you know, cap uh, rate caps and, and all the other things that are happening on these adjustable rate mortgages. And he also talked about tenants. You want tenants with a lot of customers. So one customer doesn't sink the company. And in one of my industrial investments, I had that exact thing. This um, company made a part for another company and that bigger company decided, hey, we don't want your part anymore. And that put the company out of business. So it is crucial to know who the tenants are and make sure that they have a diversified customer base so that one bad event doesn't sink them. And then lastly, Joel talked about vetting operators. And he had a good point here. You want to try to talk to the decision maker. It's not always possible, but you know, maybe you have a conversation with the investor relations person and get some of the questions out of the way. But then ask, hey, can I talk to the decision maker, the person who runs this, this show, and really ask the tough questions and, and see what the response is. So I think that's great advice. Again, really enjoyed talking to Joel. He has a wealth of knowledge and also in this very niche business in, in one market. It's just fascinating. So really enjoyed that. We'll definitely keep track of Joel and uh, see where he goes from here. So that's all we have for today. We'll catch you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in the left field with us today. If you are interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestor.com and click the subscribe button to join our community. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to the show on your podcast player so you don't miss an episode. If you really enjoyed the show, a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts would be appreciated. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.